Stanford University. My name is Seth Kambar. I'm a, a professor in computer science and applied math at Stanford. And uh, before that, I was the engineering lead for personalization at Google. And before that, I had a, a small company called Caltix, which was a personalized search engine, uh, which got acquired by Google in 2003. Uh, my name is Seth. I, I was GSB 06, but left in 05. Um, and left because I co-founded Mebo along with two other co-founders. Uh, and Mebo started as just a web IM client. It was just like, hey, let people get on uh, to AOL or MSN at the time via the web. Uh, we quickly heard from people that they wanted Mebo in their sites, fundamentally to be a social platform in their sites. So today, Mebo is distributed through thousands of sites. It's on like, you know, Philly.com or Entertainment Weekly or TMZ as the social platform in that site. So it lets users connect up with their friends on Facebook or Twitter or MySpace or uh, whatever kind of friends they want to connect with uh, when they go around the web. Cool. Uh, my name is Ahmed Kapoor. I, uh, I run a company called Gravity, and uh, we focus on personalizing the internet. Uh, before Gravity, I was at MySpace. I was the COO there, uh, where I, I worked there for a long time since it was a startup. Helped build a lot of you know socialization and social media on the web. And uh, before that, I studied mechanical engineering here. Uh, so that's my background. I don't have a business background or anything, but uh, I really enjoyed my time here. It's nice to be on the other side of the uh, classroom. Perfect. So uh, my name is Barak Pahlavan. Um, um, I did um, undergrad at Berkeley um, in exchange in computer science in 2006. I joined the uh, dark side at Stanford. Um, ba I, and basically, I was going to do my PhD here. Um, uh, wasn't exactly um, realized halfway through. I wasn't exactly my cup of tea. Left in 2008. Started uh, CleverSense, um, which is uh, it's, it's a personalization and uh, machine learning platform as it relates to location-based services. We focus on the locals. Um, for mobile and um, yeah, bootstrapped it from 2008 to 2010. Got it from 2010, and we're powering through it right now. Hi, and I'm the uh, moderator. My name is Howard Hartenbaum. Uh, I work at a firm called August Capital, which is kind of a low-key firm you may not have heard of, uh, but you probably heard of many of the companies that the partners there have backed, um, including Seagate, Symantec, Compact, Intuit, Microsoft, Atheros, uh, Xilinx, Sybase, and a bunch of others. Um, my lucky uh, entrance into the venture business was I put the first money into Skype and was on their board, and which was a really a wild ride. Um, so if you guys have interesting companies in the future, I'm the guy you come and talk to. Um, so, uh, so let's talk about the topic. And I have a, a few questions, and I thought some of them I'll just go down, and some of them will just be directed at one particular person. So um, on the first question, I'll start with Babak, and maybe we'll go down uh, the line, which is you know, the, the companies here um, are based on the premise that, that your users are willing to input their personal data uh, as part of using the service. Um, and can you explain what types of data that people are willing to share using your services and what's the value that you provide in return for them doing that? Absolutely. So, well, and if you can't hear back there, raise your hand and we'll all shove the microphone down his throat. <laughs> um, so, uh, so part of the good news is that, is that we're living in a wide generation. I mean, people are living practically on Facebook and Twitter right now. So um, as far as uh, essentially what kind of data we'll, we'll be asking for, um, the way our service works, we are analyzing the, the, the conversations that we're seeing on the web as people are writing reviews and whatnot on, on different uh, particular outs, uh, outlets. So we're, we have a new way of indexing user-generated content. So people can actually use our service without even sharing anything with us. 
uh, once we full out launch it. Um, so, but then they can further share with us um, uh, via you know Facebook Connect, um, totally opt-in service, Facebook Connect, or eventually Foursquare, even Twitter. So it's totally an opt-in service, so people can share however much that they uh, want to share. And um, I mean, privacy is a big deal thing. Um, basically, I mean, we we're not going to build a service that we're not going to use ourselves. So, and we believe in uh, an absolute uh, matter of giving control to users. So if the, the, there's going to be a button on our service that it can delete everything they've got with us and they can see it. So that's how we, th that's how we see it. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, just as, as some kind of basic background on, on, I think just data in general. So, you know, uh, I think all of us sort of experienced this, uh, this notion of information overload, uh, where, you know, over time, the technologies for the creation of content are often competing with the technologies for the distribution, the, the discovery of content. And so uh, what we end up finding is that major technology companies uh, will come in and create things that will filter that content, filter that data for us so that we find more relevance within it. And early on, you had companies create directories, then you had companies create search. Uh, ultimately, even those types of, types of filters ended up failing with the uh, user-generated content and social data that was entering the stream. And uh, companies that were creating social filters like Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, and others allowed you to actually find great content, find great information by, by uh, using your friends as a social filter. Uh, once again, what we believe is that we're on, we're experiencing another phase of information overload where the amount of, of user-generated content, of social data that is, uh, you know, available to all of us that's accessible is overwhelming our streams. And so what we do at Gravity is that we listen to users, we observe them, uh, we take a look at what you're saying on Twitter, who you're following, what they're saying, uh, what you're liking on Facebook, what you're sharing, and we build a holistic understanding of who you are, what you're interested in. Um, so if you are uh, liking a story about the iPad 2 on TechCrunch, or if you check in at a local sushi restaurant, or if you tweet about how great the surf is in Santa Cruz, we can build a really great profile to understand who you are. Uh, from that, what we end up doing is we partner with third parties as a platform so that they can tap into that data and then personalize their experiences or adapt them to users that access their site. So in the future, um, I kind of imagine this world where you don't go to you know, accessing internet sites or applications where they're all one size fits all, like going to see the New York Times or going to see ESPN, but it actually adapts to you and your interests. So the best content for you starts to get surfaced to the top and some of the noise gets suppressed. So that's what we're doing at Gravity. Um, so the whole notion of like what data you, users give and then what they get back for that's interesting because it's really hot right now, right? Everybody's talking about, oh, you know, are people stealing people's data and are they treating people's data kind of appropriately? Um, and so there's a lot of work kind of amongst standard bo standards bodies right now to say, hey, how should our industry, the internet industry, which is dependent on data, right? Like everything we do at some level depends on users giving us data and then us making something interesting out of it and spinning it back. How should we treat it? Like what are the opt-outs for users and how much should users know about uh, kind of what happens to their data, how we're processing it, and how easily, like I said, should they be able to delete it? Um, so uh, what I think is kind of interesting is most users, right, they probably don't care what happens with their data as long as they understand what the expectation of that application is, right? So what I mean by that is look at like the difference in the evolution to use two companies that are not on this panel between Facebook and Twitter, right? Like Twitter started as a very, very public data system. Like a user gives it data, the user expects that it's going to be public. And Facebook started as a private data system. User gives it data and they expect that it's going to be private. 
and Facebook has had a lot of difficulty trying to move over to making that expectation of privacy all of a sudden become public, right? Whereas Twitter has had this really easy road because they just created this default expectation with users up front. It's like, hey, your, your data is public and that's what the user thought they were getting. So I think that at the end of the day with users, it's just about expect, like setting expectations. It's like, do you set the expectation that the data is public or that it's private? And I think it's very hard to switch from private to public. It's much easier to go public to private. Yeah, I'll follow up on uh, what Seth was saying in that. Um, I think one really interesting thing about this question is that the cultural norms around uh, the value that people perceive and the risk that people perceive of giving up their data is changing dramatically. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at the mid to late 90s, there were a lot of people who said, uh, you know, I don't feel comfortable giving my credit card to a website. Um, and now that's, that's changed. And you see that not only with information that people are willing to share with the service, but information that people are willing to share with the public. And what happens is that, um, uh, and this is a really great opportunity, I think, for startups, because uh, when companies do come out, they have an existing community with existing cultural norms, and it's hard to change that, even though the over, uh, it's hard to change that within the community, even though the overarching cultural norms are changing. And so, for example, at Google, when we switched from uh, being able to have user accounts and associate your user history with those accounts, um, there was it was very difficult to do, uh, and, and we had to do a lot. We had to do a lot of communications and a lot of putting controls into place. Uh, I think new search engines that launch today will launch with the idea of having your search history associated with your account from the get-go, and then you can be opted out. Um, and so I think that there's a really nice opportunity for startups as these cultural norms continue to evolve at this rapid pace. Um, so you know, personalization means different things to different people, and I think one of the challenges of doing, you know, having this discussion is when when Amit says personalization versus when Bavik says personalization, it might mean different things to them, and it might mean different things to you guys as well. So keep that in mind if you have questions, and you know, at the at the end when we when we have a question period. So uh, I'll start the next question with Amit, and if one of the other guys want to jump in afterwards, feel free. Which is, you know, there was a lot of talk about social graph, and now there's uh, more and more talk about <coughs> an interest graph out there. Um, and so, uh, how is uh, the interest graph used for for per, for the internet and personalization on the internet? Sure. Um, so, so my background before was at uh, at MySpace and, and growing that company and, and starting to see where there was an incredible amount of data about users, mainly uh, who they were connected with. And so that was really the premise behind a social graph is being able to understand who the user is and who they're attached to, uh, and then understand that weighted attachment because we may have hundreds of friends, but there's only a few that we're, we're very closely associated with. Uh, what the interest graph does is it gets a notion of, of what we're attached to. So what sports do we like? What industries are we interested in? Uh, what uh, what you know locations are we interested in as well? And understands the weighted attachment that you have to those those things, those, those topics of interest. And uh, with the social graph, we've, un we've seen these unbelievably amazing experiences and value that's been unlocked with it um, on sites like Facebook as well as all the applications that access it. With the interest graph, we'll see similarly these unbelievably uh, valuable applications of it where as we use uh, a mobile app or as we access an internet website, by understanding who the user is, uh, what their interests are, we can actually start to dynamically adapt that site to that user. 
And as a result, you have a really engaging, amazing experience where you see a lot less of the noise that you typically see on web pages and a lot more of things that will actually interest you. So uh, that's how we see an interest graph. And one of the things that I think is just a, a nuance with what we do is, uh, is we actually attach people within that graph. So uh, if you look at semantic technology, the way that that works is there's an ontology, which is a dictionary of terms that relate to each other. So uh, where Kobe Bryant uh, is a player for the Lakers, which is an NBA team, he's also a celebrity in Los Angeles. And so those all exist as nodes within an ontology. What we do is we actually layer in a people graph on top of those, those interests and those topics so we understand what people are interested in and then we can help you actually traverse through that graph based on common interests with, uh, with friends. So uh, all of us may be interested in Stanford football and because I'm also interested in the iPad too, if you look at your relationship with me and our common interest in Stanford football, you can actually direct somebody to the iPad too uh, via uh, those kinds of inferences. So there's a lot of complexity that goes into it, but uh, it just goes to show that there's a lot of power within it too, where as we start to apply that, we'll start to actually be able to filter all this information uh, that we're once again experiencing this overload with on the internet today. Um, so I think interest, like in, in the internet industry, there are the there's the buzzword of the moment. And interest graph is definitely the buzzword of the moment. And I also think that when any given person in the internet industry says interest graph, they probably have no clue what they're talking about. And it's probably different from the next person next to them. So with the exception of Amit. Of course, with the exception of Amit. Well, actually, Howard our investment two years ago, we proposed the interest, interest graph. graph. So, so that's a, But it, I guess I'll say it as they just think, like, you have your version of interest graph. And yeah. you know what you're talking about. but. Everybody else's definition of interest graph, I think, is probably very different from yours. That's what yeah. I'll say. Yeah. Uh, and so when you think about, the, I guess the way I approach it is, you think about people's relationship with other people. So it's like you've got your very, very close circle of friends, right? And you probably, like, you SMS with them, you IM with them, you call them, okay? Then you have your kind of second order friends. It's like the people who you wish you could keep in touch with, but you don't have time to keep in touch with. Now, um, a lot of the social stuff in the web today has done a really, really good job of keeping you in touch with kind of your close friends. And you're now, like, with the advent of you know, Facebook and to some extent Twitter, the social networks in general, second order friends, really good job. You know, MySpace is the same thing, right? Um, but then there are all these other people who you probably share common interests with that you could learn from. And you just don't have a good way to learn from those people today. Right? And if you think about all the social stuff that's really kind of default happened in the web today, it's about your friends. But the thing is, I'm interested, like, I'm a pilot, so I'm interested in airplanes. And I've recently gotten into bicycling, so I'm interested in, like, you know, bicycles. Uh, thing is, only one of my other friends is a pilot, and only one of my other friends really, like, religiously rides bicycles. So I can't use my social graph to learn about cool stuff around airplanes or bicycles. So what I, what I need to do is somehow find these other people who I overlap with from an interest perspective and learn from them about bicycles and airplanes, right? And so I think, it, like in my world of interest graph, it's how can you use the fact that like maybe you and I are both interested in flying airplanes and then help connect us out there on the internet and then I can discover cool content or cool new experiences because of that. So like um, Bill Gurley and Max Levchin were recently on a panel at the Goldman Sachs Technology Conference 
and they made a very similar point. They were kind of like, look, there's Google all the way over here on like, I know I'm looking for it, it's algorithmic, and it's like, I want to find out about airplanes, and an algorithm helps me find it. And then there's kind of Facebook over here, and it's like, these are my friends, and maybe I have some interest overlaps with my friends, like we like the same kind of music, but we really don't care, you know, and my friends just don't care about the same thing, like bicycling as I do. There's some middle ground, which is based on people, and based on learning about our interests, based on people. Um, and that has not been done well yet. And like, I know you're working on it in, in ways, and we're working on it. A lot of people are trying to figure out how to do that middle ground. Yeah. Oh, you can go. So, um, <laughs> so I think in general, I mean, as um, I mean, I want to follow up on what Seth was talking about. Um, the definition of interest graph, I think, changes from. Uh, not even just one company to another company, from one person to another person. And uh, the intricacy comes from the fact that how interest graph is defined, both from the domains that it covers, let it be from people's interests versus um, um, items, as we call it, like items can be a place, it can be a brand, it can be um, a company. And how these relationships are set up, um, it, it, it will have deep impact on what the interest graph is going to be used for. Um, because just because somebody mentions on their Facebook page that I'm interested in movies doesn't, I mean, doesn't mean a whole lot. And just because they, they say I'm interested in rock band doesn't, again, the, the definition of that changes. And how in, in each graph you, you, you talk about, I mean, literally the, the, the reliability of that information, the sentiment of that information. You could just say that, you know, and also you can, the inverse of that, you could say I, I don't like rock music. I mean, how those things are set up in an interest graph would actually have implications on how the interest graph can be used. Um, talking about the notion of personalization, and interest graph can be used for multiple things. I mean, you can just find information that matters to you based on how um, uh, the graph is set up for a particular um, entity, for a particular, um, let's say, brand like CNN or, or a place, versus how your friends perceive it. Um, these are completely different things. and, and I don't know if there's going to be one single company who's going to have the overarching, encompassing one interest graph that does it all for everybody. I think um, it's much, much more um, interesting and useful if you have a focused set of graphs that are that are built to do certain things and have a very rich and deep understanding of how these relationships are set up, so they can come back and, and use it for for a specific purpose. Um, because it's just you know how um, PageRank was set up originally in the old days. I mean, it was a counting mechanism to find out what the reliability of a particular keyboard keyboard was um, as it relates to other websites. And uh, same thing with the notion of interest graph. It's just to me, it's a lot. It's just a lot more complex because these relationships um, change and these relationships are um, ev you know evolving as also people evolve with it. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there are just different definitions of it, and there are different use cases of it based on how you set up your, the graph itself. Uh, let me uh, agree with Seth on the buzzword aspect, and also use that basic uh, use the basic principle underlying the shift between the social graph to the interest graph to help you come up with new buzzwords. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the idea is that we have basically a set of nodes and a set of edges within the nodes. And the transition from the social graph to the interest graph is essentially you're labeling some of these nodes with their interests. Well, you can label them with other things, for example, reputations. And so then you have a reputation graph or uh, expertise. And then you have an expertise graph. 
and then you can also do things like label the edges themselves in terms of the types of relationships or the type of information that flows along those relationships. And so there's both benefit around generating new buzzwords, but also to think about new kinds of information interactions that happen on graphs, just using that principle of continuing to further label these nodes and these edges. Um, but by full disclosure, Sepp is one of my advisors. So yeah. we learn a lot from him, so yeah. <laughs> so he has to kiss ass a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I do it myself sometimes. Sure. Um, I, I don't think you've ever kissed my ass. <laughs> well, we haven't met before. <laughs> I try, actually, I, uh, to be uh, full disclosure, uh, August Capital is an investor in Gravity, a meats company. And I tried to be an investor in Seth's company. And had I known you other guys, I probably would have tried to invest in you too. So. <laughs> there you go. Um, so what would um, the ultimate personalized experience look like? Um, what opportunities will emerge when like everything in your life is captured within the digital realm. So why don't we start with Seth on this one? Whoa. Well, I'll answer that question if you can first tell me what the ultimate unpersonalized experience will look like. Um, somebody who doesn't use the internet. <laughs> um, so I think it's, I mean, I think that's a very hard question to answer. Um, I, this is a little bit of brave new world. Like, yeah. what could it be 10, 5, 10 years from now where, and maybe you yeah. can add into the answer, like, is it too much at right. that point? Does it, is it actually a bad thing? So, I mean, I'll give, I'll, I'll give a couple of, uh, I'll give a couple non-answers that, that answer somewhat related questions. Um, I think first is, I, I think right now algorithms for personalization are, not very good. Um, I think you have essentially two classes of algorithms. One is item-based collaborative filtering, which is used on things like Amazon. Uh, and the second, you have model-based type recommendations, which are used on, um, on uh, uh, for a lot of other sites, presumably with you guys and, and with you guys. And, um, and there's a lot, and these algorithms have been around for a very long time. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for new innovations from the algorithmic side. Um, and I think when you get those, those kinds of innovations, you'll have much more highly specific type of recommendations. Um, so that's one, is I think there's room for innovation on the, on, on the algorithm side so that you have a much higher specificity. And it's the kind of thing that you'll know when you see it, like Google search results were so much better than AltaVista search results. Um, so I think that's one kind of brave new world of personalization. I think a second is, as you, uh, as more t more kinds of data move to the web, you have a lot of um, a lot of kinds of data that are not amenable to traditional keyword search, and are much more amenable to personalized recommendations. I mean, music being an example, but job search being an example. I mean, there's some stat like 80% of people are passively looking for a job, um, real estate. So on. And so when you combine these two, and not to mention things like video, for example, where for entertainment needs, it doesn't really make sense to do a keyword-based search. So when you have this combination of better algorithms for personalization and new types of data that are much more amenable for personalization, that's, I think, the two trends that'll point towards 
the ultimate personalization experience. Uh, if I knew the specific answer to that, I would probably just start a company around that. <laughs> so, uh, um, I think as Seb was saying, it's, it's pretty difficult. I mean, th these things, we know things are going to get more personalized because there's the, the problem of information overload. As Amit was talking about, it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it's just, it, we're living through that right now. As more and more um, people are sharing, and there's more and more you're getting bombarded by, by information. I mean, it's, I mean, you just, right now, we're all, I think, living in a society that's just ADD driven. I mean, attention deficit disorder is a real thing. I mean, everyone is just all constantly getting bombarded by Twitter, you know, Facebook, I mean, news sites. I mean, there's just so much happening. I think that the way, you know, we see it at least, I don't know if it's going to be 20, 30, or even like five years from now. Uh, but one thing that we'd like to I guess, work toward is that um, this notion of uh, the information finding you in the right place at the right time, um, obviously real time, um, such that you know, we, un we would understand your relationship with, with, you, you know, with things that you care about. And as they are moving around, as they are changing, as something, if, 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 an, if an event triggers that would really, really interest you, uh, we would find you and deliver it to you. Whether you are on the web, whether you are on the go, um, much like, I mean, the vision would be something, I mean, somebody who would take care of you. When you're on the web, you wouldn't get, you don't need to sift through you know, piles and piles of documents. I mean, right now, I mean, most you know, attorneys or executives and whatever, they have um, assistants who actually sift through stuff and say, these are the things you pay attention to, these are your meetings right here, make sure you read this document. I mean, that's what they do, but they're human beings who are sifting through that information. And they also understand your priorities. So I think a personalized world, I mean, our tagline is personalizing the world around you, is, is such that you would find the information that would matter to you when you're on the go. And we would actually try to do an experience of, um, we're very big on serendipity, I mean, searchless search. So if we would actually do, think on your behalf when you're not thinking, um, and try to deliver information as it, as it would relate to you, um, uh, serendipitously. What? So, yeah. I like to think, well, I mean, we're so, we, you know, to, to sort of take it a little bit away from the being too conceptual, I think that there are some things that we're seeing today that where personalization is actually very effective in the, uh, you know, today and in the near future. And then to sort of look where we go ahead in a few years, um, we'll talk about that in a second too. But even today, I think, you know, if you look at practical applications of personalization, uh, music is one where it is very effective. So my background at MySpace, I ran MySpace Music when I was there as one of my responsibilities. And we were part of this revolution where music became very social. And I think that before that, you saw this, I think, I mean, even to take a step back from that for a second though, one of the things that personalization does very effectively is it helps us sift through a list of options. And so early on, even before social, DJs and editors would help us sift through a list of options. So if it's a radio DJ or an MTV DJ, that's how we discovered great music. Uh, a new phase happened when social entered the scene. So people were either sharing mixtapes or you were creating a playlist and sharing that on MySpace where you would discover you know, an ever-increasing pool of music via your friends as a, as a filter for, for finding you know, better options. And today with Pandora, there's an, a, a, a product where a lot of us use where you actually are receiving personalized music. And I think what they do very effectively is they don't get too caught up in like going too deep in the science because you can very much go too deep to the point that you're not finding a practical application of things. But what they've done with the Music Genome product, Project is that they use humans to actually categorize the content and then they understand based on your behavior what you're listening to, what you're
what you're liking and disliking, they're able to take you down a recommendation path. And that is a very, very effective personalization experience. Um, another one which, being, which is being used on Yahoo today is their front page. They have a Today unit where they run you know, millions of different permutations. And call it what you will, there may not be the most advanced science behind what they're showing you, even if it's just basic demographic data, targeted data, or location targeted data. But they see you know, 200 to 1,000% uplift on improvement for personally targeted versus non-targeted uh, targeted content in that space. So what we're doing is similarly, we're trying to apply that technology where, you know, I imagine this future, which is not too far off, where you go to the New York Times, or you go to ESPN, or you go to yahoo.com, and every single one of us has a slightly different experience that's catered to us based on the likelihood that, you know, I live in LA, I like the Lakers, I like golf, and I like tennis. Those should be, you know, if there are good stories, those should be the ones that are surfaced at the top on ESPN for me, instead of the one-size-fits-all, just like you're picking up a newspaper experience that we get today. Uh, so I think that that's something that's not very far off. Um, way in the future, and not even that far off too, is I think where uh, you know things get very, very heavily dynamically personalized because we start to get smarter and smarter as we take these incremental steps. And, uh, and in some way, every story, every link that you see could be somehow weighted to you with an understanding of you know, you're sort of yield optimizing to the person. Is there a likelihood that they're going to want to see this or click on this? And then it gets smarter and adapts based on your reaction to that. So we should not be seeing the same, seeing the same Groupon deals every day. We should not be seeing the, seeing the same websites as we visit them. Um, the applications that we open up should be uh, somehow different, per, like, per, differently personalized to each of us, even if it's as basic as the location that we're in with stuff that, that Bobak's doing. So uh, I think that you know, thinking about things at that practical level really gives you a sense for the power of personalization in even the near term. Um, so uh, something that Amiibo is working on right now is this notion of web check-ins, just because we're distributed through so many sites, so we want to start letting users check into those sites. And checking into the sites is completely like irrelevant. Who cares that it's called a check-in, right? If we call them here, the kind of question is, what can you do with that data? Like, what interesting experience can you deliver the user? And one of the interesting experiences that we want to deliver that user is, let's say that you go to, like, this is actually me six months ago when I knew exactly nothing about bicycling, except that I kind of liked this notion of bicycling. Um, I went to bicycling.com, which is the only site that I knew about bicycling. Um, and I went and I checked in, because you know we have this little alpha product that I'm like messing around with that's not released yet. Um, and when I checked in, it showed me other people who've checked in on bicycling.com too. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe those people who've also checked in on bicycling.com uh, know about other cool bicycling sites. So I click someone's picture. I land on their profile page. Oh, they found this other bicycling site called competitivecyclist.com. So then I go there. Ah, now that's an interesting site because now I can start buying cool bicycling gear right from competitive cyclists. And oh, by the way, now competitive <coughs> cyclists just picked up a new customer, right? And so it's literally users discovering other people with their same interests, right? Back to the interest graph, um, and being su basically suggested content or other websites that would be interested to them. And so the way I think about just kind of the interest graph or personalization of the web, like uh, what Amit talked about is a lot of how can you make the site experience better, like the New York Times better, how can you make you know, Yahoo's front page better. Another thing that uh, we're thinking about is, look, like most people are just really freaking bored. Like, you know, I mean, how often do you guys sit in front of your computer, you're like, you have 15 minutes to kill, so you go to like that good old standby website. Like for me, it's CNN. Like when I'm bored, it's like CNN.com, go. Okay, 
All right, I'm still a little bored and I have another 10 minutes to kill. Uh, uh, NewYorkTimes.com, go. Okay, still a little bit bored. I'm running out of sites though. Okay, maybe I'll try Google Reader quickly, you know? And, but you want to find other cool stuff. And so I think if you could leverage what are people interested in and then hooking them up with other people of similar interests, you could start suggesting really good content to people that starts to solve the boredom problem. And at the end of the day, a lot of what the internet does is just try to solve boredom. So. Yeah. A, a quick comment on that. So it suggests that there's a really tight uh, relationship between personalization and social. This is, so a few weeks ago, I, I walked into my 12-year-old's room and I said, what do you want for breakfast? And she said, I want pancakes. And I sat there chatting with her for a few minutes and then my wife yelled, pancakes are ready. And my, my younger daughter was like, Dad, that was really weird. And so. I wonder where is there a point on the web? Is it, if you add location into it, if you add all the other data you're putting in, like what you're watching on Netflix or what you're buying at Walmart or whatever it may be, where personalization has gotten to the point where you're just like, that's weird. Like they know too much about me and I'm curious how you guys feel about that. Is that coming or are we there or what does that look like? Well, let me, let me start by saying that there's an interesting product there, which is to, uh, on your mobile phone, to implicitly infer your interests at the moment and then broadcast it to your friends. And so that <laughs> if, they think, if, if your app thinks that you're going to like pancakes, yeah. it'll tell your parents. Um, in terms of weird, I think, uh, I think we'll progressively get more <coughs> weird. I, I think that uh, what we think is uh, weird now will become normal. I mean, weird like some people might consider that privacy was invaded or what is privacy. Yeah, I think cultural issue, norms around privacy are definitely, have definitely changed dramatically over the last 10 years and will continue to change in ways that will surprise us when we have kids and so on. I think yeah. that there's a real, uh, I, I mean, there's a real change and there's a real intergenerational change in, in terms of perception of privacy. And I, I think that to add to that, um, you, you, you mentioned when people were scared of putting their credit card numbers online. And I remember when I started at MySpace, people were scared of putting a photo online yeah. or of putting their real name online. And I was scared. I was like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to do this. But it's, you know, once I did it, uh, I started to see value in it. And, uh, and I, so I, I think you know, the, the sort of stage that we're at with personalization is somewhat similar, where what is happening right now is there, there's, a, there's a fear in the unknown. Like right now, you know, we, we project these, these potential disaster scenarios because we don't know what's going to happen. And so I think what will more logically end up happening is what you have to do is first educate the user as to what's happening. You show them value for what's happening. As a result of that, you build trust in your relationship with them. Um, and then they're going to be a little bit more forthcoming with their data. Um, I don't know, you know if or when we'll get to a place where everything's completely transparent. I can't imagine that being the case. So I think that we will have certain things about us, if it's health related, maybe financially related, maybe not, um, that uh, are kept a little bit more secure, a little bit more private. Uh, but you know, I think that like every sort of disruptive technology, we'll deal with those hurdles as they come and we'll figure out the right way to react with them, uh, to react to them. But I think that by far the value that we'll get out of it very much outweighs the risk that we're taking. Um, so it's very much in our interest to push those boundaries and try to figure out where that equilibrium is. So I do have a, uh, a weird experience that I can share actually. Uh, it, re it actually relates to your old company, MySpace. Um, there is, 
No, it's it's. It's panel there. Not on the left. Okay, cool. No, no, but in general, it's it's actually I'm I'm, I'm going to talk about um, this notion that I mean um, it really the communication of that and you know people knowing what it's been done to them. I mean that would define. Uh, how weird it is, or how you know beautiful, or how you know serendipitous it is. Um, if you search for my name on, on, online, I mean, there is, there. So you you know you find a Facebook page, which is no problem. I, I authorize them to to share my name um, to to the world, and there's LinkedIn, right? And then there is this other site who apparently got my data, my age, where I've been, blah, 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 from my old account at MySpace. And I had no clue that MySpace was doing this. I mean, that level of data sharing we was... probably weren't. It was actually... They were probably screens. crawling it. Yeah. yeah. It but that's the thing. It's, it's, it, it most likely was crawled, actually. Yeah. But this notion that the company is taking responsibility and actually taking steps to not letting these things happen. Right. I mean, but like it or not. One of the interesting things is that. To defend it. No, no, <laughs> because, because no, and I think it was interesting because it was in this time of change yeah. where you weren't necessarily aware that was happening, but it was because the the information was public. The same yeah. way that Twitter is now very obviously public information. At the yeah. time, that wasn't necessarily perceived as obviously public. But so there was this weird. That is, so that is my point. Period. So I mean, that that level of. Um, you know, unwanted sharing of information could have been communicated with me as, as a user. Someone could have sent an email to, I mean, these, these are techniques that I think if people take actions to them, it would actually take out the weirdness part. I mean, I would, I would have been totally cool with it if I got an email from MySpace, hey, look, there's a chance that our website is getting scraped. Your information might be out there. Come back and actually check off these privacy things on MySpace so we lock it down. Boom. I mean, one simple email would have solved the whole thing. Now I'm on, the I'm, I'm on the, this haunting, I mean, on this quest to somehow tell this website to remove my information, which you already scraped, and it's already in their hands, and I don't know what to do with it. Oh, no, I think that's unrealistic to uh, expect MySpace to do that. I mean, for one, crawling technologies that was one are coming. <laughs> that's one technical handling situation. <laughs> but I, think, I, think, I think what this conversation does highlight is, yeah. like, the culture is moving to where people just expect, like, hey, if it's public, it's public. If it's private, it's private. And yeah. they have an expectation that they get served that way. Yeah. The thing that we all have to deal with as an industry is there are going to be one to two percent of users who become very, very offended by what has happened, yeah. even yeah. if we set it up the right way, Agreed. right? And so we need to be able to serve those people who become very, very offended and kind of make it right with them. And so every company's got to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit briefly about personalization based on social graph, and we talked about personalization based on interest graph, and maybe the next one to talk about is based on location. Um, you know, there are all these physical check-in services like Foursquare and Gowalla and Facebook has places and different ones like that. So I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, well, we'll start with Babak this time. You know, what, what is kind of the location-based personalization and maybe compare that to how people consider personalization on the web and what will be the main challenges for location-based personalization? So, um, so there is, there is this, um, so there is there is this notion that I mean, I, 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 we are seeing this um, right now. I mean, you 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 normally know your the places that you that are around the place you live, the place you go to school, and probably on your way, 
I mean, to me, cities are, I mean, you're living in a city that's just the lights are all off. You don't know where to find things that would be really cool to you. I mean, find the next burger joint, the next bar that really would match your interest. All, this, all these other things, I mean, how do you currently, what's the service that would actually allow you to, to find them for you and let you know? Um, aside from the fact if you're living in Hollywood and you have you know, a personal assistant who's just walking around and actually finds stuff for you to do. Um, so I think we're living in, in an age that I think a next generation of technologies are needed to basically um, to help you find, um, much like how you know, companies like, such as Gravity or others are doing it, to find you know, other contents that, that will match your interests that are on the web, um, we can actually find them on, on, in, in actual physical places. Um, the problem with the old school way of doing things, um, the, the CF base, like how Amazon and Netflix were doing it, was that, I mean, it, it, the collaborative filtering way of doing things, you, you would have to have had a lot of signals established between how people relate to places. So all these check-ins are wonderful, but it's just there's not enough data being captured right now to actually use the old school way of doing things. Um, actually, I do have something we can actually put on the screen. I mean, I don't know if you, there's, there's, any, there's, a, there's a graph that actually talks about this, this point. Uh, so talking about challenges, so, I, so from the perspective of, is it interesting, is it useful? Absolutely, I think it will move um, offline commerce, it will move a lot of things that will be, um, um, that would, you, it, will help, it will help you to find um, places or deals or whatever that would match truly your interests as you're on the go. But then the, the challenges are there's, you don't have enough signals that are established to be able to use um, normal way of doing recommendations to find them. Um, actually, if you have the previous slide before this, I'm going to show you just, they're doing two slides, yeah. So this is how, this is a heat map of um, us basically analyzing um, roughly about 500,000 um, users as they've interacted with places by rating them. This is the map of Bay Area. So if you're living in Bay Area, uh, in local places, we can do a pretty good, I mean, people can do a pretty good job of doing potentially recommendations um, because there's enough people who've interacted with places that you can find, if you like so and so, you want, and so, the other person likes one, so and this other extra thing that you can also um, we can also recommend it to you. But then, if you go to the next slide, but so the challenges. If but doing that on a large scale, um, there's an inherent problem um, that is people are not moving. People are not people that are in Palo Alto are not checking in in New York as often as you want as often as you want to. So your the the information is not traveling. So it's, it's only 15% 15 of people um, uh, are basically rating or checking into places that are not local to them. So if you know a, a lot of good things about you when you're in Palo Alto, now you get up and go to London, let's say, or even New York. So what you're saying is you need the interest graph overlaid on this and then everything will work great. Yeah, because exactly. So if you know, if you have the DNA of places, I mean, it, much like how Pandora does it for music, if you know how to describe um, places, then that would change everything because then it doesn't matter how many people are establishing signals between places. It's a matter of if you know how to describe a place and if you have an interest graph that evolves for the user, then you're, just, you're, you're, you're free to roam around. You can just move around everywhere. And um, right now we've proven we're almost 90% level of accuracy if you can find places that would actually match your actual interests anywhere you go. I think what, um, what Babak and Clever Sensor are doing is really cool and uh, a very, very, like, you know, it's going to be a, a, an awesome value proposition when you can actually sort of be, be guided around within locations. Um, the way that, that I like to look at it, and I think is similar to what Sepp was saying earlier, is that it's kind of, it's, that location is somewhat of a, it's another data point within your graph where uh, in, a, in a strange way, like, location conceptually 
be it physical or digital, is somewhat the same, right? Like we, when we go to a, a town and we have a bunch of options for restaurants or bars to go to, it's almost similar to going online and we have a bunch of options for websites to visit or even being at an individual website, um, if it's a news site or whatever it might be, and having a bunch of options for what might be a cool story for me. Um, and so what, what we're all trying to do is figure out how do we help you navigate through be it a physical or a digital location, based on what's going to be personally relevant to you. And that may be, you know, what's, what's, what's the right way of determining the shortest path from you to the thing that you're probably going to like the most. And there are a lot of different algorithms. There's a lot of different methods for helping you find that. Sometimes it's the simplest ones that are the most effective. But the way that, that we tend to see it is, is uh, you know, if it's, if it's a physical location or even a, a link or a website itself, that's something that, you know, what we're trying to do is help you navigate that, sort of be your guide to help you discover really cool things on it that are going to be catered to your interests. Um. So with, look, uh, with the internet and kind of interfacing with the real world, there's this category of company that's begun to spring up a little bit, which makes physical goods. Uh, it's like Webkins is the best first example. They make a toy, and usually the margins on that kind of physical good product is driven down to zero really fast as competitors copy them. Um, but then what they do is they interface the toy in some way with the internet, and they create network effect or some kind of community for that physical toy, and then they keep their margins up on the physical goods side. So it's an example of the internet interfacing with the real world. And I think location is just, it's another example of the internet interfacing with the real world, but I think you can go far beyond like, I'm at a restaurant right now, right? Because we all stare at like the dancing pixels of our screens a lot of hours of the day. Mm -hmm. but. There are also a lot of hours of the day where, forget about like where we are, we're just doing stuff in the real world. Maybe we're in transit, maybe we're reading a magazine, lo and behold. Uh, you know, maybe we're like doing real kind of human interaction things. And so I think the question is, how can uh, the internet provide you some richer experience or some more information or help you discover more cool stuff or connect you with other people based on the actions that you're taking in the real world. And the best example of kind of how this is beginning to work, uh, kind of abstract a location and into just like interface with the real world is QR codes in Japan. Like that's actually pretty close, right? Because it's not just Q, it's not just, oh, I'm at a restaurant. It's like, oh, I just saw this ad in a magazine and I want to learn more about it. Or, oh, I'm at this store and I want to learn more about their product scan, discover. Right, so I think if you abstract a little bit away from the geo notion into just the interface of internet with real world notion, I don't know what it's going to look like in America. Maybe it'll be QR codes, uh, but something's going to happen there. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I'll also use this in, since Bob Economics gave a good answer to the location question, I'll do the same as Seth and use this to segue to another observation, uh, which is one of the things that uh, uh, made kind of this location uh, location aware computing possible is the fact that we all now have computers with sensors on them, right? We have computers that know our location. Um, and that provides a tremendous opportunity around location. Um, the more sensors we have on our computers, the more a kind of opportunities there become, not only around location, but around all sorts of stuff. So. Um, you add a temperature sensor, you add an accelerometer, you um, 
you don't even think about your phone as a computer, but why don't uh, when cars start opening up APIs, then you have different types of location. because this should be my car key. Why, why do I have a car key? Because <laughs> you know, right. the battery dies and you don't can't start your I know. Or I mean, even more specifically, I mean, why isn't uh, somebody building an app to just show me? the McDonald's when I'm driving by, right? So, um, and third parties sure, should be building. there's a McDonald's app, so. <laughs> <laughs> Starbucks app. So, okay. But not in my car, not in it's car, on my right? phone. Um, and so, uh, so I think in general, kind of, uh, I'll not answer the question of where location-based personalization is, but I'll, I'll suggest that there are other kind of opportunities for personalization will arise as more sensors get added to different kinds of computers. General question here, how do you see the interest graph and augmented reality coming together? Because I know I'm working with a company right now and we're doing a lot of stuff with augmented reality and interest graphs. And I just want to hear what you guys think about that. Um, I mean, augmented reality, it's just another way of interacting. I mean, the data that you show when you look at look through this screen can come from anywhere. I mean, certainly, um, interest graph, the whole discussions around this notion that instead of showing you, when you're looking through a lens, instead of showing you um, 100 different dots, interest graphs will help you to show the only five that would actually be relevant to you. So it makes that experience 10 times better because the screen is not clobbered by irrelevant stuff. That's it. I think it's just simple to go through. Yeah, like one of the things that we're working on where I would take my camera and show it pointing to you, and all of a sudden, a little bubble pops up above you and gives me everything I need to know about you based on what's out on the way. So if you're at a conference or somewhere like that, you can actually see, you got people you want to meet, you want to find out whether you want to meet that person or not, you can very quickly identify the person and meet and decide what you But that's not interest graph. That's, that's the notion of, that's, that's the notion no. of search. I mean, no, 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 the interest graph would be is, is what their interests are and what they do based on what I'm interested in and being able to see them. That's, that's, that's how they identify common interests and use that as like a, an icebreaker. Exactly. It's kind of weird. Exactly. exactly. So I'm going to know more about you before I get to you, yeah. then you know that I know about yeah. you. Yeah. So I think you just, answered, you just answered my question about what would be too weird for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you've got another question. Yeah, right there. Yeah, earlier you mentioned this idea of the cultural norms of what kind of information people are willing to share. You know, it's changing. And I'm curious your perspective of, you know, we have regulations, for instance, in regards to people's medical <coughs> I'm curious if you, what you guys' vision is for those areas of personal information that are more sensitive, if you see a change, a cultural change in that realm as well. Uh, well, I'll, I'll answer that question. So I, um, I, some students of mine uh, a few years ago uh, said they're starting a company that will, um, it's a toolbar that collects your entire browsing history and then it'll use it to personalize search results. Um, and at the time, I kind of tried to dissuade them from doing that, because I didn't think that people would be interested in sharing their whole browsing history with a startup that uh, nobody knows about. They had enough problems with what, the kinds of things that we were doing at Google, um, and so to, to trust their information to this startup. So they came back to me last week, and they said, um, so now we have about 8 million users. And I said, how did you get 8 million users? Um, and they said, well, we launched this feature that, that people can also 
share your entire browsing history with everybody you know on Facebook. And that made it viral. And so the fact that I was pretty sure that people wouldn't do it this far, but people then, the, re the thing that made it work was people did it even further than that. So it's very hard to, to do legislation when there are such shifting cultural norms, um, and also when there's difference, differences uh, in terms of uh, gener generationally, right? So a lot of the people who were doing this was, were younger. Now, what I think, uh, where I think legislation may be able to go is to be able to do things like require uh, control, require choice, require transparency, and require data portability. Mm -hmm. um, and those four things, I think, um, despite, like, to be able to use a service and choose to not have your personally identifiable information shared is something that's nice. Or to be able to choose to, uh, to say, I don't want to use the service anymore. I want to move to another service, and I want to move my data with me. I think those four things are really uh, where legislation can happen. Um, great discussion, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. My question is on the monetization of these personalization services. So, what do you guys see as the, the way that people can, companies can actually like, make profit from it? Would it be a freemium model where, you know, over time users are willing to pay for the services? Or should it be like more enterprise, like only big companies for advertisement based, uh, I guess, like personalization will work? Like, how do you see, like, companies actually being able to make profit in the future, not in like in the next two or three years, but in 10 years time, would users be ready to like pay for this and be part of their lives? Yeah, at, at, at the broad level that we've been talking about around like, there's this generalized notion of an interest graph and you can do lots of different stuff with it. I think it's very hard to pin, oh, and therefore this is how you'll make money because the best way to make money on uh, products on the internet is usually figure out the very specific way users use your product and and then make money off of that. So like in the example I gave of the way we're thinking about interest graph, like let's say that you did have me and I was at bicycling.com and I clicked on someone's picture probably because I want to find other cool bicycling stuff. Well, that sounds like search. Right, I mean, and I'm going to that person's profile because I want to find other bicycling stuff. So there's probably room to do a keyword bid between specialized track and surveillo and say, hey, who's willing to pay the most to get me to go to their site, right? Um, so that probably looks like a search monetization play. Um, but, you know, Ahmed probably has ideas on how to monetize, you know, yeah. uh, making the New York Times a more relevant experience um, based on the interest graph. So I think it just depends. Yeah. On, how, on the actual expression of the data to the user. I agree. But there was two questions last time, now there's nine. I've got a quick one on, and pardon my ignorance, it's scaring me a little bit, but I'm thinking of uh, emerging markets, and uh, I've got Iran and China on my mind. So when you have, uh, I mean, you can't even speak uh, politics with a CCP uh, liaison in a room when you're dealing with executives at a Chinese company. And when I hear you talk about almost an AI type of uh, we'll find what you want and send it to your friends um, and they'll see what you're thinking about. Uh, uh, like kind of a bolt of fear goes through me a little bit because I have sisters in Iran that sometimes uh, they'll post things on Facebook 
you know, without their control or without without proper head start. But this, uh, how does this this information is going to be uh, gathering itself and possibly, you know, I don't want to, it's not the end of the world here, but you're going to have two types of users, in my opinion, in an emerging market. One is going to be someone who doesn't understand what they're putting in, uh, which is scary. And second is going to be uh, someone who is now knows what you do and is afraid, which will shoe off potential consumers. Big question, I'm sorry. Right, so how, how, how do you, it, it sounds like we're talking about the developed world in this conversation, and I'm thinking of, you know, potential 400 million users um, um, I mean, in China. What I say, what I say to that is I think um, the potential for all so social technologies, not just personalization, but this, I mean, with Twitter and Facebook and everything, I mean, the potential for surveillance is a real, uh, a real danger uh, to consumers, not just in the developing world, but everywhere. Um, and I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, I mean, I, I think that people will continue to build tools that allow people to express themselves, um, and people will continue to use those tools, uh, and uh, there's a, uh, use those tools very publicly. Um, and they have wondrous potentials, like uh, they can you can build your own personal brand through these, or you can learn a lot through lots of people communicating. Uh, but they also have uh, downsides, which are, which are things like uh, surveillance. Um, and it reminds me, uh, so R Richard Feynman said this thing where he went to Thailand, and a Buddhist monk told him, to every person is given a key to heaven, and that same key opens the doors to hell. And he said that technology is the same way, is that a, a lot of the same technology that enables wondrous opportunities also enables nefarious opportunities. Um, but without proper protection, won't stifle growth and emerging? This is just going to happen. Yeah. I mean, like, look, my, my mother, it, it, God bless her, she just went on Facebook, like, and someone commented on some picture she put up there. And she responds to the comment with something she should not have said in public. The, the good, because she had no clue. She thought she was, you know, privately answering that person. Fortunately, my sister saw it, calls my mother, and is like, "Mom, it's Facebook. <laughs> Delete that." You know. And then my sister, of course, IMs me immediately. It's like, "Can you believe what Mom just did?" Um, so you know, it, tell me, world, your mother. <laughs> People are going to screw this stuff up a lot yes. on any new technology, yeah. and it, again, it kind of goes back to the tools to try to help people remove this kind of stuff, but it's just risk. Yeah. It's exciting yeah. to get through this disruptive part of technology, so, but those are, I mean, those are fears that we'll get through, but we're early stage. Yeah. No, but, but I think one last comment on that is just, uh, I think as long as there are tools there to correct the mistakes. Right, it's not like you're, it's you. You said it, and it's, you can't delete it anymore. It's just, I mean, you, you as long as the 
as long as there, there are things, or you can furthermore, you can say from now on, I don't want to share so on so. As long as these tools are there, I think we would give um, a lot of, uh, I mean, we should give a lot of credit to, to, to people. They, they can learn and they can pick up these things very, very quickly. And much like, you know, your, your mom probably wouldn't do this anymore because she knows now. You, I mean, you never know. <laughs> you never know. You know. <laughs> but but, but pe people also will evolve. I mean, we should give credit to people's intelligence. I mean, they will get things. Uh, one or two mistakes are made, and after next, the third one, hopefully, we're gonna, it's going to be avoided. As long as the, the tools are there. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.